Amen to that. Let's pray. God of heaven, we have come to do what we have sung. We have come to behold the wondrous mystery. We have come to delight in the glory of the King of Kings. We're here because your Son is great. And your Spirit is powerful. And you've spoken and you desire to continue to speak to us. And so we pray that you would do that. Through your Word. Your perfect and inerrant Word. We trust you, but we want to trust you more. So would you help us to see your glory and to delight in your power and to to know your sovereignty in a new way because of encountering you in this pre-planned meeting place of the Bible. Change us, God, we pray, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Hope is one of the buzzwords of the Advent season. Our culture pushes hope in this season by uh, commercials of happy families opening presents or by making sure that all the plots of storylines are resolved with bright and merry resolutions. Everything kind of has that fuzzy filter. I don't know what it's technically called, but it kind of takes the sharpness and the contrast out of everything. There's also simple hopes like hope of time off of work and of school and of a, of a bonus or time with family watching that favorite holiday movie. And while I'm certainly looking forward to some of these things, we must admit that they are seasonal things. They are fading hopes. They are shakable hopes. And deep down we know this, right? We know that the quiet wonder of snow falling sometimes means shoveling. And that family times don't often look like those commercials where the perfectly matched pajamas and the perfectly formed whipped cream of the cocoa mugs on commercials. We know that these things are not always uh, as they appear. And that's because there's a difference between well-wishing and some substantive hope. Spurgeon describes a difference in this way. He describes well-wishing as an indefinite, hazy, groundless wish that things will turn out all right. And true hope, he he says, is accurate knowledge, firm belief, spiritual desire, and an expectancy that is fully warranted. Can you name an expectation that you have this morning that is fully warranted? What is on your list of guaranteed hopes? What is a lock this morning? Well, today we're going to see... Uh, this Advent, the celebration of Christ's birth, it provides us with an unshakable hope. This is a hope without pretense or qualification or caveat. It's a hope that we can grab onto in the midst of an unstable global and economic situation. And it's an expectation that is fully warranted. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7 through 9 this morning. And really, the bright hope of Isaiah chapter 9 needs the dark backdrop of chapters 7 through 8. The reason why jewelers, whenever you go to a jewelry store to buy 
a ring with a diamond showcase that with the backdrop of that black velvety material is to show the brightness of the diamond. And so it is with Isaiah 9. The context and the circumstances around it are what make it particularly incredible and hopeful this morning. We'll summarize a bit. Obviously, we're not going to preach through three chapters. I'm not that naive. Um, but here's kind of our, 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 our road map. First, we're going to look at this dark backdrop, that, that black material uh, behind the hope in chapter 7, 1 through eight ten. Then we're going to see that hopes actually get traded in a, a portion of chapter 8. And then we'll look at that glorious section in chapter 9. So first, the dark backdrop of this hope starts in chapter 7. And it's actually the first uh, aspect of this, there's three that we'll look at, is that there's an immediate threat of war. And this threat is creating fear. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me of chapter 7. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. The time frame of this book is prior to the rise of Assyria, immediately prior. And here we hear that Syria and Israel have joined up and formed an alliance that's come to attack Jerusalem. The threat was real. The threat was in their faces. It was at their gates. And Judah's king Ahaz and the people were gripped with fear. They shook and they trembled. But then we read in verses 3 and 4, it says this, And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool of the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Ramaliah. So Isaiah curiously announces there is no need to fear, and he describes these two kings that seem very much to be a threat as smoldering stumps. Not this raging fire that's threatening, but a fire that's smoldering and about to go out, because God will continue to say in chapter 7 that he is going to remove this threat. He's going to bring these nations to nothing soon. God even goes on to provide a sign for Ahaz, which is kind of the second part of our backdrop. He provides children as confirmation of his protection. Look at chapter 7, verses 10 through 16. The demise of these nations is so certain that God is going to give them confirmation through this sign, starting in verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey, and when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good... For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Now, what is this saying? 
Imagine the offer of verse 10 where the Lord says, ask whatever sign you want. I mean, can you, can you imagine being in that position? And what does Ahaz do? He chokes. He pretends to be pious. He postures. We know from 2 Kings 16 that Ahaz has already sought out an alliance with Assyria. And so he forsakes the reassurance that God offers because he's already arranged and secured his own. And so God is frustrated with this. And so he gives him a sign anyway. He says, all right, you won't take a sign. I'll give you one. This child, this Emmanuel, this God with us. And this child would serve as a living reminder of God's promise to nullify this threat. He will be a living, breathing timeline of God's promise. Now we know that this child would not only serve as a reminder for Judah, but its greater fulfillment is found, Matthew notes, in the birth of Jesus Christ to Mary. But God doesn't just stop there. In chapter 8, verses 3 through 4, he provides another child. Some people think it's the same one. But look at chapter 8, verses 3 through 4 with me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mahershalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So here again, we have another child, God's instrument for removing this threat from Judah. So God is going out of his way to to underscore his promise. These children will point to the removal of the threat, but they're also pointing to an even greater threat that's coming on the horizon, and that's the Assyrians. God promises temporary protection, but we see the third aspect of this dark backdrop is that another nation is coming, and that nation is Assyria. And this future is gloomy for Israel. If you look at chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, Assyria is described as a river that's going to overflow its banks. Look at me with, uh, in chapter 8, verse 7 through 8. It says, Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So, we have the promise of temporary deliverance, but we have this coming invasion, this dark backdrop that even though God is with them, even though he's Emmanuel, it's slightly different than what we originally thought. He is with them to temporarily deliver them, but he will also be Emmanuel, God with them in the midst of judgment. When we sing Emmanuel at Christmas time, we're probably not thinking about Emmanuel in that sense. But God is also Emmanuel in his judgment as a chastising father in this description. So this is the backdrop. This is the setting that we're going to see this bright and glorious vision in chapter 9. But it's dark and it's difficult. And it shows us the first thing about this unshakable hope that we have. The first implication 
for us this morning is that unshakable hope is not found in circumstances, but in God's presence amidst circumstances. This is disastrous from a worldly perspective, right? I mean, if God's people end up with unshakable joy in the midst of this difficulty, it's not because things are rosy. It's because God is always who God is. God is with us in different ways based on the spiritual condition of his people. He is Emmanuel in protection and Emmanuel in judgment. And he is wonderfully consistent even though we fluctuate. He never abandons us. Isn't it easy to be tempted to think that somehow God has abandoned us when things aren't going right? Have you ever done that? Can you identify with the response of Judah that equates God's presence with God's blessing? It's like children who want their parents around when they're doing the right thing only, right? Like the kid who's kind of looking around before he does something wrong. They only want the presence when it means blessing. Can you identify with that? Can you identify with just wanting Emmanuel to mean a certain thing? But it cuts in multiple directions. And it's a far better promise than we know because we need God to be near in all of the complexity of who he is. For some, Emmanuel is a terrifying idea. When Jesus comes, when he is literally on the earth, some will hide in caves and long for death. And other people will delight and dance. And that is the difference of Emmanuel. I would suggest that the hope of God's nearness is that he will be who he is at all times. He is simultaneously father and judge and defender and shepherd and counselor and savior and creator and friend. And his nearness means that we will receive the encouragement or chastisement or humbling or illumination or fear that we need. This is our fully warranted expectation today. Do we need to expand our welcome of God's presence Maybe our appreciation of Emmanuel this season, this idea of God with us, can grow during Advent. So that's the first thing we find, that unshakable hope is not found in circumstances. It's found in the fact that our unchanging God is Emmanuel. But secondly, we see that some hopes were traded back and forth. Look at chapter 8, verse 11 through 22. As this threat and this gloomy prediction of judgment kind of spreads, people, people's hopes, they begin to separate. They begin to diversify. And in the rest of chapter 8, we see a divide between those who are going to hope in God and those who are going to turn to other alternatives because it just isn't working out. As circumstances shake God's people, some will cling more tightly to the promise that he gives and other people will start looking to trade it for human resolution. Nothing sifts our hopes like trials, right? Can you recall a time when a trial really tested the metal of your faith? A time when circumstances seemed to start to outweigh your hope in God's wisdom. It's easy to scramble for human explanation and human alternatives, and this is exactly what we find happening in the midst of Judah during this trying time. 
Look at verses 11 and 12. This is Isaiah speaking. He says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Look over at verse 19. We see the same pattern. And when they say to you, Inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Some in Judah are pretending to know the reasons why things are happening the way they are. They're trying to control the situation by controlling the narrative. There are factories that are producing fear through speculation. Even though God has explained what's happening and why. But some aren't satisfied with that revelation. Some aren't satisfied with these two children and watching them age. And so they go out and they seek alternative revelation. They're looking at mediums and looking for those who claim to speak to the dead. Anything that will give them some idea of what's happening and why. They turn to human interpretation in their impatience. But on the other hand, in chapter 8, we also find Isaiah and a faithful remnant clinging to the promise, satisfied that God's revelation is sufficient to sustain them in this season. Look at verse 13. Of chapter 8. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Look at verse 16 through 18. The instruction to Isaiah bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Look at verse 20. To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Isaiah and others are insisting that and narrowing their fear to God alone. They are not releasing that. Their confusion or grief over God's plans don't justify forsaking trust in Him. God is who He is. And fearing God involves deferring to His goodness in difficulty. Do you see what Isaiah says? He says, to the teaching and to the testimony, like, fall back to the refuge, go to Helm's Deep. Right? What has God said? What has He revealed? These two children that God gives as signs are sufficient for Isaiah to sustain his faith in difficult situations. He says to seal up the teaching, meaning preserve it for future generations. This is so certain that we need to preserve what God has said. Often we sing, when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. And that's what Isaiah and this remnant are doing. This shows us kind of the second implication for unshakable hope, and it's this. Unshakable hope trusts God's promise and timing, refusing to settle for lesser hopes. Difficult seasons tempt us to transfer our hopes and multiply our fears, don't they? We form plan Bs to kind of up the chance of success. And we see the separation that's happening now in Judah 
And it's a separation that happens when, when God reveals who he is. You see, if you look at verses 14 and 15 of chapter 8, you'll find familiar imagery where God is described as both a sanctuary and a stone of offense. Those who trust find that God is a sanctuary, and those who distrust continue to find reason for offense. And these two groups keep moving in that direction. Because if you cling to God, if you think that what He has revealed is sufficient, you find that it's sufficient. And by His grace, He sustains you. We're content to watch these children grow and to prove God's promise and wait with hope for what's next. But if we become our own interpreters of history, if we become embittered toward God because of confusion around the circumstances around us, then we move in that trajectory. It's like setting a role for Emmanuel, saying, you can be with us, but you've got to be with us in this way. It's like kicking the cosmic candy machine in frustration. And you do that enough and you end up with an attitude that Isaiah describes in verses 21 and 22 of chapter 8 when he says that they are enraged and speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Question for us, are we trusting God's timing as well as God's word? How do you need patience to trust in his timing and what he's currently doing? Do you and I put conditions or timelines on what God is doing? Are we tempted to settle for merely human hopes and to make the trade that some of the people of Judah made? Unshakable hope trusts God's promise and timing, refusing to settle for lesser hopes. Let's look at the basis for unshakable hope in chapter 9. You thought we'd never get there. We're there. We spent a lot of time looking at this backdrop in the environment because it's so important to see the glory of chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. It also helps to answer a few questions that have come up already if you look at chapter 7 and 8. Like, if unshakable hope isn't found in circumstances, well, where would you find it, Right? Or, as we watch Judah trade their hopes in difficulty, you might ask, well, who is right? Like, did Judah get out at the right time? Did they sell their stock at the right time because things were just going to get worse? Or was Isaiah right to bank on the promise of God's hope? And if Isaiah was right, but things were so difficult around him, how, how can he do that? Like, how can, what kinds of hopes could be substantial enough to sustain a man that witnesses so much historical wreckage. Like, what could possibly sustain him? Well, chapter 8 ends with this plunging into thick darkness, and then we read of the glorious hope in Isaiah 9. I'll just read 1 through 5 to start. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Let's just stop there. God is going to intervene and reverse the anguish and the gloom that we've just seen out of chapter 7 and 8. He's going to overcome the uncertainty and the vulnerability and the lostness and the hostility of this world. And he does that by reversals. So notice the first one in verse 1. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. The tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali were in the north. And they had a particular shame because they were the gateway through which Assyria would come. They were the first to fall and to be destroyed. And they wore that badge of shame because of the area that they lived in. But notice what will happen in these latter times, whenever that is, right? That this same area, that Galilee will be the spot that is chosen to actually be the first area to reveal His glory. And He'll do so in full view of the Gentiles. And verse 2 explains that people who are in darkness, engrossed in darkness, the people of chapter 8 will be blinded by the greatness of the light that comes through that same area. Light in Scripture is indicative of salvation and protection and life. And notice the light comes to them. What is Isaiah talking about? He's talking about what would occur 700 years later when the Messiah would, would operate and, and begin his ministry in Galilee and in those areas. Then Matthew would identify Jesus as this glorious uh, start, this restart for this area. That the beginning of the gateway to Assyria would also be the gateway to the ministry of the Messiah. In Matthew chapter 4, he makes this explicit connection. This is what Isaiah is referring to in chapter 9. We'll hear more about the light of God's Messiah next week. But not only, not only are they given light, but look at verse 3. It gets better. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Notice, you have multiplied the nation. In the hopeful vision of God's future, he reverses that, that Judah is no longer this shrinking remnant, but it is a massive people. It is a massive and joyful nation, like the gathering of Revelation 7. It says, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In Judah's shriveled, shrunken state, Isaiah says there will be a day when this nation will multiply and will be massive. And he says this massive nation and group will be full and overflowing with joy. In, in contrast to the distressed and the panicked people of Judah, right? Isaiah is saying there will be a day and he's just grabbing at things that, that would be the most joyful circumstances in the mind of a person from Judah, which is harvest time, right? The work is over. God has provided. Let's celebrate. Or when there's great victory in war and they're dividing up the spoils and, and the bloodshed is over and there's victory. 
He's grabbing at whatever he can grab to help them understand the kind of joy that Israel will experience when this vision is realized. And why are these people so full of joy in Isaiah's vision? Look at verses 4 and 5. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Why are they full of joy? Because God has conquered every enemy. These oppressors that are at their gates or this coming foreign power will be overthrown and God will single-handedly and comprehensively win the day. Like he did with Gideon. You remember what happened with Gideon? Where God shrunk down the army? Their enemies were massive. Untold thousands. And God shrinks that group down to 300 Israelites. And what are their weapons of war but trumpets, glass jars, and torches? And why does God refer to that kind of victory in Isaiah chapter 9? It's to say, God is the one who wins. It's not the people of Judah. They're showing up and the war's already won. All they're doing is dividing up the spoil. This is one-sided. This is not participation by Judah. This is, you get to walk in the flow and the train of his victory. And notice, this isn't just a victorious battle. This is the end of war as we know it. Notice in verse 6, Sorry, verse 5, that the weapons of warfare are destroyed because they will have no use anymore. Worldwide peace. Now imagine what this sounded like to Judah. Sitting, scared, enemies at the gates. There's a more powerful army that Isaiah is talking about after this one. They're watching these children age day by day. Some soared with hope and some probably scoffed at how ridiculous this sounded. And so the obvious question that a a person in Judah would have is, how? How is this going to happen? What could possibly bring about this kind of reversal that you're talking about, Isaiah? Don't you see what's happening around you? Can't you hear the armies outside the gates? And Isaiah's answer is verses 6 and 7. For to us... A child is born to us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Up to this appointed time, God has chosen two children to serve as time markers for when his plan would take place. You could say that they are divine I told you so's. But now we have another child who wasn't a simple time stamp on a promise, but a child who would indeed be God himself, a son. At first, no names are given. We just know that the government will be on his shoulder Some may be thinking that this is Ahaz's son, 
a future ruler of Judah. But then these names start cascading in verse 6. They make it clear that this is no ordinary son. This is, this is a, a son that's differentiated from the two that have come before. Because he is wonderful counselor. He has divine wisdom. His counsel will be supernatural, not like the world's. He won't be like this king that's shaking with fear like trees in the wind because he will be mighty God. He will have limitless power. He will be everlasting father. His concern for his people won't tire or fade. It will last forever, forever, unlike other kings. He will be a prince of peace. He will not need to send bribes to nations like Assyria or jockey for a tenuous peace. He will bring about a true and lasting peace. And as Isaiah rolls these names, the expanse of his kingdom grows His rule expands until the point where lasting peace covers every square inch of creation. And this child is identified as the long-awaited Davidic messianic king who would rule with both justice and righteousness. And those two things will characterize his rule forever. That's how. And this would have sounded too good to be true in Isaiah's world. And it does so in ours as well. Our political and governmental systems serve a good purpose and we should continually work at improving them. But ours can be a world with dissatisfying candidates, over-promising campaigns, political rancor, tyrants, imperfect enforcement, and all the other indicators that sin has broken our society. And sometimes we forget that our salvation includes political and cultural deliverance. Just imagine a king that will know what to do and how to do it and always have the power to do it. This last phrase, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, is like the assurance that the people of Judah need, right? This isn't some remote interest of God. He is passionately invested in seeing this project through. This isn't possibility. This is certainty. What are the implications for us? I see two, and then we'll be done. I think this vision sustains the person sitting in the worst of circumstances. And that same vision for what's coming for Isaiah is the same vision that we too have as followers of Jesus. First implication is that unshakable hope is a certain reality. This is all we want and more. To experience this kind of rest and deliverance and safety and delight forever, this is what people are scrambling to find. What better hope could there be? And this, this is available to all. Right? Emmanuel, God with us to save provides hope for those who will spend Christmas alone, to those who are under the weight of a diagnosis, to those who are losing sleep over relationships, or those whose life plans are up in the air, or those who are politically exasperated, or those who are in war-torn areas. If God is zealous to do something, it is sure. And so we can, as Spurgeon says, project ourselves into the future and orient our lives around it. This is a certain 
reality. Second, unshakable hope arrived in a person. This hope is specific to a person who has come. And this is what sustains the hope of Judah and of us. This child of verses 6 and 7 is Jesus of Nazareth, born in a manger to Mary and Joseph in the line of King David. And our unshakable hope is bound to this baby. And this is the glory of Advent, that hope showed up uninvited, that Jesus came, Son of God, sent from heaven, came and lived a perfect life and died as a substitute and raised, and that our hope is alive and is coming again. And without verses 6 and 7, nothing else in this text is possible. As the song says, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And without the baby of Advent, we would be left trading unreliable hopes with one another in the dark. But because of his arrival, because of this time of year, we have an unshakable hope if we are following him. And so let's take this opportunity to wonder at the manger again. Within it lies the light of the world, the basis of our deliverance, the end of war and oppression, the just and righteous ruler, and our unshakable hope. Glenn, with the zeal of the Lord of angel armies, will do this. Is this your unshakable hope this Christmas season? If you aren't a Christian here this morning, do you have unshakable hope Can you say that you have fully warranted expectation? Well, hope has come. And the lesser hopes of Christmas will soon expire. And so I would plead with you to trade in these lesser hopes for true and lasting hope. A Christless Christmas is a hopeless Christmas. Jesus has come. He is indeed God with us to give us hope and salvation. So don't miss another opportunity to find true and lasting hope in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this vision. And thank you that though it seemed absurd in the time of Isaiah, it seems so unrealistic and out of reach that the very things Isaiah said came to pass. That a light did dawn in Galilee to the nations. That you are growing your people. You are giving us joy. And you have scheduled the end of all war and oppression and sin and death. And that is a certainty. Would you help us to look to Jesus for hope? When lesser hopes fail, when other cast visions are dashed, give us eyes to see the glory and the beauty of the hope that is in front of us so that we can walk uh, in a way above the fray, and above the storm and testify that there is a hope that doesn't fade and that even though life shakes at it, 
relentlessly that it holds fast. Thank you for the hope of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.